Tenzinsche Koehin, zwolle dat de zinnesten niet gekregen, niet deze kan gekregen. Ja, dat kan langer in. Welcome to Conlangerian, podcast about constructed languages and people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Good afternoon. Yeah, how are you guys doing? Doing great. It's a gorgeous day out. I was just sitting in the hammock, knitting, and uh, enjoying the nice breeze and sun. It was, it's a gorgeous day out. It's a little chilly here. Yeah, uh, I, I rode my bike back and forth. I just... Uh, I just came back from the last few talks in the the Mid-Continental Phonology Conference, uh, a.k.a. Mid-Fon. <laughs> so, so that's an uh? <laughs> what? They should just call it uh. Uh? Yeah, that's middle. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, that was uh, interesting and exciting. So I have to... to um, uh, um, meet a few new people and uh, listen to some talks. I got a new appreciation, I think, because this is like, this is like the second conference I've, I've attended and uh, getting uh, an appreciation for what, um, you know, academic linguistics is about. Mm-hmm. Were there any fights? Um, I don't know, a little bit. Some, some people that, there wasn't so much antagonism, really. It was a lot, uh, it, it was actually pretty positive. A lot of people giving constructive criticism on sure. different things, which is, which is great, you know, to see that happen. And it, it makes me feel great that I was actually able to give a little bit of criticism to some people because I generally think of myself as being like, you know, not you know, undeserving of being called a linguist, but now I'm slightly getting a little bit better. <laughs> right? Sure. Sure. Wait till you give your own talk and someone asks you really obnoxious questions. <laughs> oh, no. I, I saw people having to deal with obnoxious questions, but you know... Well, uh, I, was, I, I was being very sarcastic by obnoxious. I mean, this is how the practice happens, right? College, and especially post, you know, advanced college, is not kindergarten. You are not there to be nice to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> right. You have to say, wait a minute, that idea makes no sense at all, and then move on. Right, right, right. And that, that is, that is part of what happens. And also, you also get some, some weird tangents going on. But anyway, I could talk, I could talk a whole lot reviewing the, the conference, but that's not what we had in mind to talk about. And, you know, some of it would be, that would be interesting for our audience. Some of it might not be as interesting. But we have planned for today to talk about space and time metaphors. So uh, the impetus from this was uh, language log linked like the PDF of this entire book by, um, I don't know what it is. this like Martin Haspelmott, my hero. Martin Haspelmott. And it is wonderful. Um, I'm going to say, like, um, I'm going to link this in the show notes. I'm going to say probably 
people who are looking at this information for conlanging, you'll probably want to, you know, look at the introductory chapters to get a general overview. But like the meaty stuff for conlangers starts around chapter four because he's just giving like just lists of different uh, strategies that languages are doing for these various different types of temporal um, temporal markers. Yep. So, so that's that's like the big thing, and it's all about the the whole thing is about. Um, focusing on how we make sense of time by means of spatial metaphors right and uh just how how that um works out so like all of us have different notes on this and we've we've pulled up a bunch of other articles as well that that uh go into um this stuff in a lot of different directions um the thing I wanted to start with was just in general, like the way the passage of time works um, when it's mapped to space. And um, can I jump in with a, a quick thing first? Yeah. Right. So we have in previous episode talk about that. That well, let me just start that sentence over again. We have in a previous episode talked about um, conceptual metaphors, mm-hmm. um, and this is just one particular subfield of the conceptual metaphor thing. Now, when Lakoff first wrote about the uh, space-is-time metaphor, um, he thought it was because humans have no direct experience of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is, you know, there's all sorts of interesting questions about how you even defend or refute a statement like that. Um, other people, and I've got a link to an interesting paper, where it's less that we don't directly experience time but we still need a way to conceptualize it and talk about it. And the great thing about space, and there are multiple domains of human experience that are mapped onto space. We think about emotions. We think about states. And the great thing about space is that it has three dimensions um, and emotion. So there's all kinds of things you can do with space that make it a likely target of conceptual metaphors. Yeah, and I, I can think maybe maybe space... I don't know. I don't want to get too crazy speculative about it, but like maybe space is a little bit more concrete than time because you can take a space and like just look at the whole thing at once, which you can't actually do with time. Sure. But sure. Um, just like to start with, uh, first of all, so he talks he talks about how different spatial axes are involved, and if you are mapping out, um, you know, space, the three dimensions of space on different axes, usually what you're doing is you have front to back, and that can be relative to yourself or to other things that have a front and a back. Um, you have left and right, and you have the vertical up and down. And basically, one one of the things that he points out is it's very, very, very common for front to back to be the thing that it, the axis that is chosen for um, for uh, temporal metaphors, and it's not it's not necessarily what people would expect, but that um, it's actually fairly um, it's actually very very common for the past to be in front of you and the future to be behind you um, in in that sort of conceptual space. 
there's other there's also use of the vertical access uh, axis which you know up is the past and down is the future in chinese you have you 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 do uh like previous is is shang up and then next is xia down and they use that with some time words and English has a little bit on the vertical axis too. We talk about mm-hmm. how you know this knowledge passed down to the present day, mm-hmm. um, but there's also uh, that might be interacting with um, other conceptual metaphors that happen in English. In particular, unknown is up and down is and known is down. That's that's true. Right, like like the matter is settled. So um, English has some vertical time metaphors, but nowhere near as many as the the front to back. Right and. And the thing that that is interesting to point out is there don't seem to be any languages that do left and right. So if you want to make an alien language, there you go. <laughs> now, but what do I, you mean? Hmm? Sorry, I was going to say, what do you mean left and right? Just like, like as in, in general, you don't, you don't, you don't conceptualize time as like going across from you from left to right or right to left. True. Across, um, across you. There was um, an interesting thing that I found in one of my papers that's kind of relevant to this point here, if I can mm-hmm. just mention it. Um, one of, Not my papers, one of the ones that I found and we'll go over later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the one, it's, I guess, a chapter in a book, How Languages Construct Time by Lyra Baroditsky. Mm-hmm. And um, I have this in notes. They mention, um, they gave some speakers four photos. Either they were like um, a banana being e- eaten or a tree gro- being growing. They're cut chronological photos that they asked the person to order. Mm-hmm. And um, this might be a little different than what you were talking about, but people who, ha- sp- who whose language was written left to right put the first photo in the sequence on the left and progressed to the right. The people who spoke languages that were written right to left put the first photo all the way on the right, like Arabic, Hebrew, they did sure, it that way. Sure. And the, right. people, the interesting thing is that the people whose languages had absolute space it depended which way they were facing, how they set up the photos, but they were going east to west. So when they were facing south, they laid them out left to right. When they were facing north, they laid them out right to left. And when they were facing east, they came toward them. And when they, when they were facing west, they would lay them away from them. So that's just a really interesting kind of um, thing that they do with that. Yeah. So like people like Google Yimadir and things like that? Like these um, the, Australian languages that use... Um, Absolute direction, yeah, perhaps, yeah. The one they did was Kukthayore, I think, or I. Okay. It's in. Well, there's some in there. South America too that do. But that, it was. So. It, I mean, it's not ex- actually a conceptual thing of it, but it's how they organize it visually. Yeah, and sure. I figured that that's, was a good place that, to mention. That is an important thing to think about too. That's not necessarily like I. I would think about it as more like like there the the there's language that's. Indirectly affecting how they sequence things in a non-linguistic context. But, like, the only example I could think of where you have a language that actually, um, translates, like, uh, a left to right thing into a temporal metaphor in the language would be, like, linguists' use of, uh, right and left, um, uh, that we've mentioned that where left left is the beginning of a of a sentence, a phrase, or something, right? And then right is the end of it. In a common I yeah. I was going to say if you have a language where there's like a word for uh, like maybe if you're if you're like using absolute direction, mm-hmm. and there's a word for like where the sun rises and where it sets, rather than up and down or before you and behind you, that set of prepositions could be 
used in a conceptual metaphor kind of way or a space-time metaphoric kind of way. Yeah, and I think Haspel Matt's sample I don't think has any of those kinds of languages in it. So it would be interesting to find out if they they do anything like that. But yeah. like he was focusing on the the front to back because that seemed in his sample that seemed to be really really common. And there there's there's an understandable like conceptual thing that you can think about there in that you know front and back that's your general direction of motion. You know you're going you when you're going somewhere you're going toward what's in front of you right um and up and down is he he sort of is his theory is is involving that you know you know front and back is you know is your main you know volitional motion thing up and down is a little bit more limited but people don't really like think of themselves moving left and right that often and that was his sort of explanation True. Yeah. And if there were, if you were writing a conline for, say, um, a non-humanoid species or something that were in like the ocean or where they did not, where their movement was not restricted to mainly forward and backward, where they did strafe mm -hmm. or ascend and descend on a more regular, uh, everyday kind of thing, you might see something on the conceptual metaphoric scale, kind of that would embody that, um, that those other dimensions. Yep. Hey, challenge for somebody. Try to figure out what the spatial metaphors would be like for a creature with radial symmetry. <laughs> hmm. That's terrible, George. Yes. It's terrible. I mean, you still have gravity at that point can be something you can organize. Yeah, they, they, they might go up and down. Well, might... you could also do, like, closer, closer to you and further away from you. Like, if it were like a, like, think of rings on a tree. As the older they are, the further from the center they get. Sure. So I could see that. Uh, that, that might be interesting. Somebody, somebody, somebody do that project. I want to see it. I don't know if I want to figure it out myself. Um, but anyway, so that is one of the main sort of threads that was going through Haspelmat's, um, whole, uh, book here. And, um, and, uh, he talked about now, Okay, so you can have the the front back thing go both ways. It's very very common for you to put the past in front of you and the future behind you. And if you don't if if you think that's weird, like, you know, people, you know, Eng English speakers don't think about that so much and you know, you hear news stories about oh, this language does the does this like puts the the past in front. But this has occurred at least historically in English with the words before and after. If you think about what those, what, what the etymologies of those words are, it is that same sort of passes in front of you. And, but at the same time, we also have metaphors of moving forward into the future in English. So it may not, it's not necessarily an either or choice. You can have a mix of different metaphors going on in your language. Mm. And well, I think realistically, if you want to make a like a naturalistic conlang, you probably want to make a, a mix of different things. Um but he 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 sort of frames that in sort of a an idea of like putting the, the past in front of you is an idea of uh of time time is moving and then putting the future in front of you is more like moving ego. You're the you are moving 
right. forward through time. Right. And there's also the issue of we're back to the known unknown thing. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit weird to have the future in front of you because we don't know what the future is. Right. Uh, right. There's one, uh, I forget where I read, where some Malagasy informant said, well, we don't have eyes on the back of our heads. <laughs> uh huh. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there's a lot more to the, the things that he's talking about. So that's like a very general thing that, uh, happens. He also talks about different types of temporal markers and where they come from. And one thing is like, Duration, and when you mark two locations in time and have a duration, so in English it's most commonly from X to Y, um, it turns out that that is a very, very common way to do that is to have, um, a from, some sort of an, uh, like an ablative, uh, expression, something that's come to come from something that marks the, you know, the point that's before, and then the point that's after you mark with an allative uh, to or toward type type of thing. Um, but it's not the only way. He also mentions that you can derive terms from a word for beginning. Uh, there's one, there's, uh, it's common in Romance languages. You have, like in Spanish, a partir de, and a partir in some way sort of means beginning or departing, uh, the leaving from something and starting. Okay. It's sort of a little in, into both. And you can also derive things from the, the term for end. And he's talked, he talks about all sorts of things. And there's also other sources for, okay, going back for before and after, which we first, that was, that's the main thing where you have the the spatial of you know front and back often happening but you can derive it from the word for first a word that meaning means until um that's that's not you know until is already a temporal term and things like not yet uh, but like close to and the end you can have things i think really the best thing for people to do because i can read out the laundry list of things that he's listing but the best thing for people to do is to read this um this uh pdf that we're going to link yeah and look at the, all the different options and uh from now on i'm just going to cover some high points right it's the uh uh there's an enormous appendix with mm-hmm. lots and lots of examples from many languages which gives you uh the example of where things are coming from mhm so it's pretty neat uh before i go on and hitting hitting more of these points about different markers. Does anyone else have anything to, to uh, jump in with? I just wanted to oh. mention uh, one mm-hmm. thing, thing that I, I found in one of these papers is that the, the Toba system of time is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So we're used to certain things being circular. Mm-hmm. We really think about years as circular and that follows seasons. Um, after, you know, a lot, many, many generations of watches, we can think of, you know, time is circular. Mm-hmm. But the, the Toba situation is interesting mm-hmm. in that, um, where's the description? Cause I don't want to screw this up. We'll have a link to the thing. So basically, um, you are, basically time is a counterclockwise circle. In front of you is the recent past. 
And, and instead of just going out in a line, it swoops up and goes over you. And that's where both the remote past and the remote future live. Mm-hmm. Behind you is the immediate future, which is rolling up to hit you. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. Lots of uh, fun possibilities there. Um, we'll include a link to that document and you can see this nice picture um, mm-hmm. and some of the examples. So that's all I wanted to add about something other than okay. just straight lines for time. Yeah, well, so so it doesn't have to be necessarily straight lines. So. Right. Um, I have a couple points that are uh, somewhat related to what you mentioned. Um, one of them is on duration. Um, you mentioned, when you were mentioning earlier, you mentioned a little bit more about the actual nuts and bolts of the words that people use to express, you know, duration of from point A in time to point B in time and the, the, I guess the architecture of that kind of formation. But in the, um, in the language time article that I, or chapter that I read through, they talked about, um, a little bit more of the conceptual metaphor of it. It mentions that in English, um, we often talk about duration in linear distance, like a long time. Um, and whereas, and I don't know Greek, but according to this blurb that she talks about, she says Greek speakers talk about duration more often in terms of amount. For example, and I'm not, I'm not even going to try to read it, but poly or, well, okay, I am poly aura for much time. Right. And, um, what she, what she found was that when she, she had English speakers and Greek speakers perform a task of estimating how much time had elapsed. Um, and to compare the two ways of thinking, she exposed them to non-linguistic, um, what was it? Ir- irrelevant distance information or irrelevant amount information. Mm-hmm. And it said that participants' non-linguistic duration estimates varied as predicted by the space-time metaphors in their native languages. Um, English speakers having their estimates more heavily influenced by irrelevant distance information, and Greek speakers were more heavily in- influenced by irrelevant amount information, you know, disturb, um, disrupting their, their metaphors. The other interesting thing on this is that after she did that initial part, English speakers were trained to use Greek-like metaphors for duration. For example, thinking, instead of saying a week is more, is longer than a day, saying a week is more than a day. And what she says, or what the article says is that, um, these, that training resulted in a more Greek-like performance on non-linguistic dura- duration estimation tasks. So it was really interesting to think about that because we do talk, think about time being linear and a long time or a short time using adjectives of length, whereas in a conlang or a different culture, um, be it natlang or a conlang, you think about it in amounts, you can think of it in uh, you know, just different... There are different um, spectrums upon which you could vary your duration. So sure. I just wanted to toss that out there. That's really interesting. Yeah, yes. that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good. That's a nice. That's a nice little solid sort of effect. And, it, and the main thing I think about it is that you know the idea of having the your your duration, you know, having a metaphor with amount. Wonder what other mm-hmm. things you could um, deal with. Like, could you do it with height? You know, there's there there's there's a lot of different metaphors that you could potentially get into. Um, going back to like Haspel Matt and like his, his ideas, I'm not going to, I'm just going to hit a couple high points. Like um, what he's calling simultaneous temporal markers, uh, which is like, you know, where you can, you can say on Monday at 12, you know, and that that's, that's considered to be like the same time. And, it's just like you're pointing out a point in time. He says it's actually very common to have this thing that English has is just have a very simple locative expression 
used. And, you know, in English, we see that those are, you know, have these lexical restrictions where you say on Monday at noon, uh, in 2014. In, yeah, in 2014, mm-hmm. you, the, there's, there's these weird sort of restrictions that can take place too. Um, and another thing that I found interesting, he talks about some, um, atelic extent, which, okay, that's a little, this, 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 uh, this, uh, th- this discussion is a little technical, but, um, it's like I waited for two hours. If, um, I think we've covered Telicity a little bit yeah. in various things. And so an atelic verb is a verb that doesn't have like discrete endpoints. And so atelic extent would be, uh, how do you mark the amount of time that an atelic verb occurred during? And so in English, we have the, you, you have this four phrase. And he actually shows, he's actually saying that that's not all that common. It's actually pretty common for you just to have like the, the time listed with no, nothing, nothing in particular introducing it. And he, and you can say that in English too. I waited two hours. Yeah. 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 I think he mentioned like if, if you have case marking, it tends to be in the accusative case, but it's not like that for all languages. You don't have case marking. It's just you stick the time in there. Sure, sure. So there's an interesting. So my favorite hangup, of course, these days is semantic maps or implicational maps. Uh-huh. Um, and Haspelmott is famous for coming up with one for time. Um, and in this book, it starts on page 106. Um, I'm not going to explain everything, but the point is that things that are connected on that map likely use the same way of expressing things. Mm-hmm. So year, month, and season are all connected, and in English we use in, in 2012, in the fall, in January, um, mm-hmm. to describe those. Um, French uses en for all of those. Japanese uses ni for practically everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Hausa uses year and month uses one thing. What's interesting is that um Hungarian seems to have gone completely crazy <laughs> and has a separate way of expressing being excuse me simultaneous time for hours, days, day parts, like the morning, seasons and only has year and month having the same shared expression. Wow. <laughs> right? So, what? you know, at 3 o'clock on Tuesday in the morning in the spring, all of those will use different marking. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them, I mean, there's some different marking there in English because we have at, in, and on, but so there's lots of uh, fun to be had there as well in thinking about what each either preposition or case marker or whatnot does. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that's... That's a, not so much metaphorical, just sort of an interesting way of, of dividing these locative expressions up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I noticed that you have this is this is a, a semantic map that you have stolen for your thesaurus too. Yes, I do. Yes, <laughs> not right. stolen. I said where I got it from. I, yes, I know you <laughs> you you cited it properly. It's not plagiarism or anything like that. Right. But um, it is it is an interesting um, uh, notion, sort of the the way people are grouping things together. They make. They make a sort of sense in the way that they're um, grouped, at least if you look at the two different sides, where 
year, season, and month are grouping together, and hour, day part, and day are grouping together. Yeah. Um, I don't. I have like a lot of like little bits that I saw in the Hasselblad paper, but um, you guys found a lot of other stuff. Mike, did you have you have more things that you were going to mention? Yeah, I've touched on some of them, but um, there are some really interesting things. I was looking around for um, articles and papers on space-time metaphors. Found a couple that were they were okay, but this one that I was talking about earlier, the one by um, Baraditsky, um, I really liked. It's not too long. It's not too heavy. Um, it's chapter 20 of some book. I'm not quite sure which, but mm-hmm. um, so I've in the notes, I've kind of summarized each of the sections, and there aren't that many. There are only like six sections in there. Um, so she talks about in the beginning, let's see, she summarizes, and then the axes of time, like you mentioned earlier, axes, um, they mentioned that whereas English is more, English uses a more horizontal, um, oriented time, uh, ax, an axis for time, Chinese uses more vertical, and it mentions in here, it says, um, one, yeah. let's see, Mandarin speakers are more likely to talk about time using ver- vertical metaphors than our spe- uh, English speakers. So to test that, um, what was it? They, I think they just bas- they analyzed how quickly they responded based on certain data that they were presented with and certain orientations. I believe. I think that was that one. Let me just make sure. Um, yeah. So they test how, basically their proficiency. Um, and they had, for example, native speakers and native Man- native English speakers and native Mandarin speakers were asked to spatially arrange temporal sequences shown in pictures. And the Mandarin speakers arranged them in vertical arrays 30% of the time, and English speakers never did. Um, and then the more proficient, <clears throat> excuse me, when they were in a 3D variant task, they arranged, they assessed how often the Mandarin did vertical versus horizontal, and mm-hmm. um, they talk about several different studies here, and it's really interesting to see that kind of difference that they they have between that vertical axis use and the horizontal axis use. Yeah. Um, but- uh, yeah, a key thing I want to emphasize here is like when when you're doing a conlang, especially if you want to make it look natural, uh, don't don't be don't be thinking in a, in a way of saying okay, English English is horizontal and Mandarin is vertical. Mandarin has more vertical time metaphors than English does, and um, if you start learning Mandarin, you'll 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 find those very quickly, like um. And things like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mentioned um, a lot of before and after is up and down, especially with things like um, like months and uh, weeks, things like that. Um, But they also have the they also have front and back and they have um, the 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 common variant where um, uh, Qian, which means both front and past and then whole means both back and future so they have they have the the two different axes they just use one a little bit more often than english would would happen to do so when people are doing conlangs i think uh this is one place where you don't want to necessarily make one choice and stick with it you prob uh especially if you're doing doing natural if you're Wanting to do something that's like oxlanging, maybe you want to pick the most common metaphor or something like that. But if you're doing something that's, that's trying to be natural, naturalistic, it's a, a, probably you want to sort of get an idea of what kind of mix you want and then mix things up as you're, 
and maybe maybe you know if you 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 want to write a whole lot of stuff about how your language handles time and do a whole lot of different different things in different places mm-hmm. yeah i think yeah, that's I, the if you want naturalistic i agree mm-hmm. what was that yeah, I was trying to remember. I think there was some offspring of Esperanto which uh, tried to claim that it was more rational because it had completely separate prepositions for a number of expressions of time. Mm-hmm. That seems wildly unlikely. Now, for me, in my personal version of English, I almost never use before for anything except time. That's true. I mean, you can say something like, you stood before the king. Um but that just, I would say he stood in front of the king. So we still have some things that are manifestly derived from location expressions that are now pretty much only used for time. It's kind um, of a marked use. Yeah, but to have an entire set of um, prepositions or adpositions for time screams alien. And if you want to make them different, uh, one thing that Haspel mentioned was that the time expressions tend to be, he says they tend to be older and more grammaticalized. Yeah. So that's that's an idea that you can think of as like, um, you know, make make uh, something, you know, make the make the um, the do something like make the word for past be like a form of in front that was like glommed together and fossilized at some point in the language earlier or something like that. There, There's many different ways you can do it. And he has examples from different languages that you could look at if you're familiar familiar with this, those languages or you want to do a little extra research and see about what kinds of, what ways that you can see that they are more grammaticalized. Right. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of these, so, <laughs> we've been so, yeah, um, back to Max, but a lot of these it's always going to be about the mix rather than mm-hmm. this language absolutely does this or this language absolutely does not do this. It's always going to be, well, it's like 30% or whatever. Mm-hmm. This kind of metaphor, and then, but for the rest, it uses a different variant of that. So that's something to keep in mind for all of these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, going through this little chapter article PDF, um, they talk about motion and time, which it was, um, was a little, it was interesting. They mentioned that um, Mandarin, earlier you mentioned there's time moving, and there's ego movie metaphors, mm-hmm. um, where you're either, either the, the, in, the interlocutor or the observer is traveling through time or time is moving past the, in, the person, the observer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they mentioned that, um, they said that Mandarin tends to rely more heavily on time moving ones, whereas English rely, seems to rely more on ego moving mm-hmm. ones. Um, and I don't, they don't really give too much, um, evidence or too much of where that analysis came from but it's an interesting thing about you don't have to have just strictly one or the other like we were mentioning earlier you can switch it up and have one that they tend to prefer and one that might be for certain situations or certain like if you're telling a story for a certain voice or certain kind of very market situation where you'd use that um yeah yes that's an interesting idea it's sort of like um is uh you could think of if you if you want to image the the difference between time moving and ego moving. Think um, is time can time be considered a river or can it be considered that that you're sort of passively on a boat? No, sorry, no, that's wrong. One thing is that ti- was... is time like a river? Or is it like a path? 
Are you are you going through time, or is time going past you? In um, one of the other links that I found, the Gentner one for, by Deidre Gentner, I, I think that's the name. Um, they give, give a nice little uh, or nice little diagram for time movie metaphors versus past movie metaphor versus uh, ego movie metaphors, and some examples in English. So some examples of the ego moving metaphor are I'm going to do that. I am the person I'm going to do that for the future. We uh-huh. are fast approaching the holidays. We must go forward with this plan. Right, the, right, the right. Present is a point just past. Some right. examples of the time moving ones are the years to come or the years gone by, the holidays are coming fast, night follows day, where the time is actually doing the moving and the observer is more a stationary um you know, in a stationary position yeah, that's, compared that, to the time. That, actually, that's a better thing than, than what I was thinking. I was making something up and then realizing it was a bad example when I said it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And this happens for a lot of, again, like the rest of conceptual metaphors. In English, you know, states like being happy or sad are either things that come upon us or things that we enter ourselves. So, again, once motion's involved, there's lots of motions that you can do, um, and any given language is going to use both of them to, to mixed degrees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, um, if you're wanting to get like a theme going with a language and you're wanting uh, at least to, to get an idea of they use one metaphor more than another, sort of get an idea of what the associations are. You know, if, if you're, if you're focusing on ego moving metaphors, the future is usually going to be in front of you. If you're focusing on time-moving metaphors, the past is usually going to be in front of you. That's that's uh, those those sorts of things. And time-moving metaphors that may actually lend itself more to you know up and down because gravity gravity is sort of an undirected motion. But I don't know. That's... So I mean, it was interesting with the motion in time um, and how time, whether you are moving within the milieu of time or whether time is moving past you and you are stationary. I think it's just, you just, there are different ways to express that and your language can have some of one, some of the other, and it can lean more heavily on one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, the last, well, there were three more sections on there. I've already touched on the last two, but um, moving forward, um, they talk about reversing the direction of time. So they say one factor, and I mentioned a bit about this earlier, but one factor that affects the perceived direction of time, uh, the author writes, or the linguist writes, is that people who tend to read text arranged left to right tend to lay out time as proceeding from left to right. And people who read text arranged from right to left, like Arabic, Hebrew, arrange time from right to left. And they said that this reversal has been documented in picture arrangement, arrangement tasks. Yeah, that's, um, in, that's, isn't that what you talked about before, the picture arrangement? Somewhat, but it's different. Um, it mentions also when they're gesturing, like when they're talking and they're... Um, having elicited gestures of points around the body, and also a non-linguistic spatial association tasks. So for what they're going to say here is that um, English and Spanish put the past behind the observer and the future ahead. But they say in Aymara, the pattern is reversed and the future is said to be behind the observer while the past is in the future, or while the past is in front. And, um, and that's, that's, that's relating to gestures, not just to, just to the... the the language itself. That's Yes, they look over their shoulders when they're talking about the future. Well, they say when talking about the past, the Aymara gesture in front of them. When talking about the future, they gesture behind them. A striking reversal from the difference in English and Spanish. That, so that was kind of really interesting. Now, that's that's an interesting thing. because Now, I could see if, if the future is unknown, you, you can't see behind you, so I could see where that could logically come about. 
and you already know what's happened in the past, so you can see it in front of you. Mm-hmm. Because, but and that's that's another place where you're, you're where where we can think about the mixture because like, um, English linguistically we have both things. We have the the sort of fossilized forms that are sort of related to front and back in the way of the the past is in front of you, but when we gesture toward the future, we gesture in front of us, and when we sort of and we often make make things of say things like we're we're moving forward into the future things like that so it it could have been like there was a historical change at some point where we changed the way we tended to think about the time um or you know it could just be like the gestures the gestures are not necessarily going to match up with what the language is always doing or you know that there's a whole lot of directions that people can go here, especially. <laughs> if, 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 there are many. That's, well, that's, that's hilarious, the, George. That's the that's the whole thing that this this thing is about. But I mean, like, there there's extra decisions to be made once you're going outside of conlang and going into con culture and dealing with things like communicative gestures and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, if you think about it, like, if I think about, say, you're working on conlang and you want to try out reversing the direction or changing it instead of forward, front, and back, trying top to bottom. Think about telling a story and where you normally gesture like like next week and you might do a forward arc with your hand or last week and you might gesture your hands in a backward circle. Think about if you were pointing up and down for that. And that kind of, I feel that that, you know, that really weird, strange foreignness um, of using, I guess, a, an orientation time that I'm not familiar with. And so that's one way you can kind of test the waters a bit and see how it might be if they were doing something a different way. I think, yeah. I think I could, like, if I was listing events, I could go, like, I could, like, be gesturing, like, put my hand flat and have it coming down one by one, like mm -hmm. I'm reading a schedule. Yeah, but if I were saying, like, yesterday and I pointed down, that'd be weird for me. That yeah, that, tomorrow that, that, that's a little odd. Or like if I said next week and I rose my hand upward, I mean that that feels very strange. But it, it you know in other cultures, um, I'm not. I'd be interested to see if if cultures that wrote exclusively vertically. I know there are like Chinese and Japanese that write vertically, but they also can write horizontally. But I'd be interested to see if there were a culture that was not exposed to left to right writing, um, how they you know navigated this, mm. this domain. Well, I mean Chinese wrote mostly vertically for a long time. Mm -hmm. We'll have to go talk to the Mongols. No, they're mostly using yes. Russian these days. Oh, Maybe yeah. Maybe the alphabet. Who's How about the... And, the, and, and like, Manchus no. are... There's, there's, there's not very too, many. There are too few of them to get generalized. And there's data. not enough... To, and there's probably not enough that are not bilingual. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... Um, um, here. The last couple of places... Um, sections of this. They mentioned duration, which I talked about earlier, where the, with the Greek and the English. Um, that was interesting. And then the last one was the absolute space thing, where they mentioned, um, you know, where the, there are some ab Australian Aboriginal communities of the Purumpurau, um, where, unlike English, that language does not routinely use left and right, but they use north, south, east, west. And, um, it says what they do, is um, they kind of like I was mentioning earlier. It depends upon which way they're facing, and it's interesting because they weren't they weren't necessarily told, okay, you're facing north, you're facing south. Just as they were doing it, they arranged them how they naturally would arrange them. 
So um, basically it says here, what is it? Um, this is true even though we never told any of our subjects which, dire which direction they faced. Um, they not only knew that already, but they all spontaneously used that spatial orientation. So they weren't prompted to or to put them in a certain orientation on the ground or however they were or or ordering them. But it was just really interesting to read about that and to think about other ways that are not one-dimensional in terms of like left to right or in a line, but how you could do it farther from you and closer to you if you're organizing them or closer and further. And again, if, like we mentioned earlier, if you had a some species that like or some language community that used radial symmetry or went from closer to being pre the present and further away being the future or past, it'd be interesting to see how that changed things. Uh huh. So that pretty much wraps up the, uh, the sections of this article. I thought it was really interesting. Gave a lot of great, um, great points that were like, oh, okay, I can understand that. I really, so. I really want someone to. I mean, you were talking about like gestures and arranging pictures and things. I think I want to now see if anyone has done work with those that those type kinds of languages and finding out what their cognitive metaphors that they use in the language are relating to time because that would be interesting if they also had the east to west thing mm -hmm. but uh you know that it it could be that it could be other things that they do um so i think that is about all that we've had to uh, talk about. It was a lot of stuff to talk about, and we just don't have time to go through all the things. So, we will we will put all the things in the show notes, <laughs> and you can click on links and read all the things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, that that will be, uh, that, that can be good. And, again, somebody make a language for starfish and, and figure out how their temporal metaphor <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, anybody have any final closing things to say before we end the episode? Nope. Good. Well, I think we did well. All right. And I'm going to say happy conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our Contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.